0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. All right, this is the letter of Paul to Philemon, the holy word of our Lord. Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Appiah, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, all, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord." For perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for the word that you've given us through the letters of Paul, and especially through this one, this personal letter to Philemon, Lord. We thank you that your heart is revealed to us today through letters that were written 2,000 years ago. Lord, we thank you that you will give us today the words that you have for us. And Lord, that the words from my mouth might be the words from your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we read this letter, it becomes apparent that this guy Onesimus was a runaway slave. Um, Most believe he was probably in charge of the finances in Philemon's home. And that wasn't really unusual at all. If you look back in the in the Old Testament, uh, Joseph was in charge of the finances of all of Egypt, and he was a slave at that time. Um, and then if you look in the New Testament, there's the parable of the talents that Christ taught about where the master gave talents to three different people and then went away and said, take care of my money for me. So it wasn't unusual at that time that slaves actually were in charge of cash. Um, so... You know, he was probably tempted, I guess, because here was all this money. And and so he took off. He absconded with the cash. And through God's providence, and, I, and I'll say why here in a second, he made his way to Rome. He probably thought he was going there because it would be easier for him to hide in Rome. It was a big city. In fact, at that time, in, in that in the first century... Uh, AD Rome had between four and five million inhabitants, and they didn't have main roads, and they didn't have sewers. It was a busy place. It was half the size of LA. Rome was half the size of where LA is now. So think about that in the first century AD. Okay, so. It was pretty easy for a runaway slave to hide. He didn't have a social security number. He didn't have a fingerprint ID. He didn't have a real ID card, so he couldn't fly. Well, he couldn't fly anyway. So it was pretty easy for him to go there and hide. It would be much easier for him to hide there than it would have been to hide in one of the smaller towns there in Asia Minor. Um, So here he was. And I say God's providence because while he was in Rome, somehow he came in contact with Paul four to five million people, and this guy who's a runaway slave of a Christian master comes in contact with Paul. While the circumstances of that contact, they're they're not important, and they're actually not written about, the results of the contact are, because Onesimus became a Christian. And not only that, as it says in verse 11, he went from useless to useful. So much so that Paul would like to keep him around. And Paul needed help. I mean, he didn't hardly write his own letters. This one he actually says he wrote, but a lot of the times he had people to help him to run errands for him and and do things like that. It says here he was an old man. And Onesimus was a very helpful man, so he wanted to keep him around, but he also knew that Onesimus had unfinished business back in Colossae where he came from. So Paul sends Onesimus back, but not without this letter, which Paul is pretty sure will help bring about forgiveness and reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus, and and we'll see. So while the main theme of this letter, this short letter, is that of forgiveness and reconciliation, as we read it, you probably also figured out Onesimus was a slave, that Philemon was a master, Philemon was a Christian. And so there's this underlying thought and theme that deals with Christians and slaves or Christians as slaves, which is both. So the master-slave relationship wasn't unusual for that day, and it's mentioned Paul Paul writes about it in Colossians, he writes about it in Galatians, he writes about it in Ephesians, and 1 Corinthians, get the picture, he writes about it a lot. It was an important relationship back then. And there are scholars who actually believe, and I read a a lot of different, and, and can testify to this, I had books all over the bed. So I read about a lot, of, a lot of different commentaries about this point, but one of the things that I read that really struck home was that that a lot of these scholars think that that little tiny letter there was the genesis or the beginning of the change of heart for Christians and how they felt about slaves and Christians actually not being slave owners. So Paul's words here, a lot of people feel, were that generated that thought and that Mindset and we're going to talk about that later about how we treat other people even if even whatever category they belong in for us how we treat them so Again, since you won't see any fill-in-the-blank slides up there and, And I'm not against those. I'm just not smart enough to do them I have no idea what I would have done and I didn't even have my notes done here until Friday maybe Saturday morning yesterday morning, so there was no way, because Sherman put that slideshow together last week before he left. Um, so I don't think I could have had that happen. So if you're taking notes, and you probably only got one little piece of paper in your bulletin, you might want to write tiny and flip it over onto the back, because we're going to try to talk about both subjects this morning. We're going to try to talk a little bit, for, for a little while, about forgiveness and reconciliation, and then we're going to try and deal and touch on the other theme through this this little book, that of how we treat others in Christ and who they are to us in Christ. So, hopefully, we'll be able to navigate our way through that. Anyway, here we have a personal letter written by by Paul. Along it says there in verse one with Timothy and Timothy. And a, and a side note for that: how how many of you help out and have been a part of of activities and groups, uh, ministries here in this church or you've been a part of a, like a youth football coach, or you've worked in some other aspect in this community at the Senior Center, or while we were in a community theater together. There's a lot of things that you're a part of that are in and out of the church, and um, there's a lot of you who are leaders in those things. So I want to take just a second here and say, if you're a leader in something, you do what Paul did here? And if you look in Paul's books, you'll find that he mentions other people. In fact, at the end of this, he mentioned five people. He mentioned Mark and Luke and Demas and and some guy whose name I can't pronounce and some other guy whose name I probably can't pronounce. He talked about those people. He put them forward in his letters. He made note of their service. Do we take time to mention those we work with? If we're leaders in something... Not that, not that they're looking for our praise or our approval, and not that we need to you know, be these people who do that all the time, but it's important that we recognize the service of others in Christ, especially in Christ. Not only, you know, I know that at the end of the sports program, they have a little dinner for the kids, and they give them all their trophies or whatever it is, and, and the coach will usually say something nice about everybody. But here here Paul is writing this letter for posterity, and he mentions Timothy. That Timothy is even there. And that Timothy is serving alongside him. And that Timothy's service, just by the mention of his name, is important. And we need to be people who do that, who are gracious enough to put other people first. Side note. Sorry, we'll get on with it. Anyway, so we have this personal letter written by Paul along with Timothy to Philemon, Apthia, Archippus, and to the church in their house, which is most likely the church at Colossae, which Paul wrote the letter to Colossians, and Onesimus is actually mentioned in that letter in chapter 4 as a faithful and beloved brother of that church. So it's most likely that's where Philemon was, that's where he lived, and that's the church that was in his home, the church at Colossae. Um The fact that the church is actually listed as one of the addressees is actually important in this letter because it shows that Paul wanted to ensure that that letter was read in front of the entire church. Remember I talked about how these letters would go by hand from Rome to wherever they were going to, and these guys would stop in these towns and they would hook up with the churches in those towns, the Christian believers in those towns. So Paul meant for this letter to be read to everybody, and which is probably why when they were figuring out which books were going to be in the Bible, this one was included even though it's not written to a church, but to a person. It's kind of like the letters to Timothy. They're written to a person. They're still good for us today. Um, he wanted to ensure that everybody in the church would benefit from this letter. All right. Enough introduction. Let's press on. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 it says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, Apthea, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to talk about five points under reconciliation that, that have to deal with reconciliation. Point number one, Tactfulness. Paul could have been extremely forceful in this letter, and he could have just dictated to Philemon what he wanted. After all, he was an apostle, right? In the Preaching the Word commentary, Kent Hughes writes, in light of the magnitude of Paul's apostolic office, he could have assumed a Jimmy Cagney stance, and I'm not going to talk like Jimmy Cagney. He could have said, see here, Phil, this is Paul writing. I'm the boss apostle. I've got this guy here, Onesimus, and he's converted, and he's swell. So don't give him any trouble, you see, because if you do, I'm coming over to see you. Now, How do you think that might have worked out? (laughs) Probably not too well. How many of us have had people talk to us like that? Like, you're just going to do what I say because I'm the boss, and that's the way it works. Does that really work out? You might do what they say, and in this case, Philemon would have probably done what Paul said, but at what cost? At what cost? So when we want true reconciliation with others, we need to start with our own attitude being right within us. We need to approach others in love. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 13 verse 1 says, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, and I have not love." I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So no one wants to listen to that. So no one wants us to come to them that a place is not from a place that is not loving. So what did Paul do? He cheerfully greeted them. He called Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. He called Appiah, our sister. In fact, in the original Greek, that word sister, our sister, is actually beloved, which is a form of the word agape. And Archippus, who most believe was Philemon, Apthia's son, he says, you're our fellow soldier. You fight the battle with us. So here he is, cheerfully greeting these people who he just could have just just slammed on, and he didn't do that. It doesn't sound like someone who's going to be pushy at all. Rather, it sounds inclusive, like all consider these people's equals in Christ, which he actually did. And so that's really good, but you say, "Well, I've heard people talk to me nice like that, you know," and, and they say all this nice stuff just to get what they want. But really, it's just an act. And that's true. I've had that happen too. So let's go to point number two and read verses three through seven. It says, "I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus, and for all the saints, and I pray." that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Point number two, sincerity. Paul takes the time to tell Philemon why he is special both to Paul himself and to the work of the spreading of the gospel, which means Paul has taken the time to acquire this knowledge about Philemon. Okay, so what you say? Okay, remember, I can Google Diana today, and I bet I can find 20 Diana Wises on the internet, and I can narrow it down till I find the Diana Wise that I want to find, and I can find out. Almost everything about her, including where she buys her glasses. Right? I can do that. I can do that from my bedroom in my gym trunks. No big deal. Paul couldn't do that. Paul had to take the time. He had to ask people. He had to get reports from people. He had to want to know who Philemon was He sincerely wanted to know who that man was. And when he wrote to him, he was sincere about telling him how proud he was of him, how he understood things about him, how he understood his faith for Christ and for the saints, and how he understood that he refreshed others' hearts through his actions and through his words. This is a man who was sincerely writing to another man who understood who he was and understood what he meant, both as a person and in the body of Christ. So, how many of you have ever had a boss? You can raise your hand, it's okay. Uh, How many of you have a boss right now? Yeah, okay. I don't, except my wife, because I'm retired. So I've had bosses who really took the time to know and understand and appreciate what I did, and I've had bosses who didn't. And the difference was really important in that first relationship with those people who took the time to know and understand me and appreciate me for what I did at work there was respect there was trust and it was a good relationship and it was profitable for all of us when I had bosses who didn't take that time who didn't understand who I was who didn't know how to talk to me there was no trust There was no respect. And you didn't work together with that person. And so you couldn't accomplish what the things you could accomplish if there was that trust and respect. So if we need to reconcile differences between ourselves and others, or in Paul's case here, he's not reconciling himself to anybody, actually. He's trying to help Onesimus and Philemon be reconciled. So in any case here... We need to be sincere because other people know if you're not. Philemon's love is mentioned, and his faith is mentioned, and in that way, he knows that Paul really understands what's going on. And he goes on to encourage Philemon that the sharing of that faith will be effective for the kingdom of Christ. If we don't share our faith, how can we be effective for Jesus? If I have faith, and I don't ever tell anybody about that faith. How does that help the Kingdom of Christ? I'm good for me, and I'm good to go, and I know what's going on in my own heart, but if I don't share with others, how can I be effective in the Kingdom? This led me to think that a couple of months ago, or maybe even more now, I got off the internet, okay, and. I did it because I didn't like what I heard. And now I'm kind of wondering, maybe I should get back on the Internet just so I can share my faith with others in that way. And we'll see how that goes. Anyway, finally, Paul tells Philemon that the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you. Now, next week if Pastor Sherman comes up to you and says, I wanted you to know something. I've watched you do this, and I've watched you do that, and I've watched you help here, and I've watched you help there. And I've seen you come when other people aren't here and dig holes in the ground and put sprinklers in. And I've seen you come when other people weren't here and clean the building. And I've seen you come and I've seen you. What I've heard what you say in the men's meeting or the ladies' meeting or, or, or the, the youth group or any other thing. And I just want you to know that my heart is glad that you're here. My heart is refreshed because you're around me. How would you feel? Would that not build you up? Would that not make you energized to want to go talk more? Would it not want to say, "Wow, that's really cool. I'm glad that I, I know that I recognize, but I'm glad that someone else that I respect recognizes that I'm really trying here." Sincerity of heart goes a long way when it comes to being forgiven and having reconciliation. So let's move on to point three, verses eight and nine. I'll read it. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ To command you to do what is required Yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you I, Paul, an old man And now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus Point number three Under reconciliation if you're writing them down Gentleness Paul tells Philemon Hey there, I could force my will here We talked about that earlier but instead, he says that because of love, I want to appeal. Now, if you have your King James out, it's the word beseech. That word is an interesting one because it comes from two Greek root words. It comes; It is the Greek word parakaleo, and the two root words are para, which means to come alongside, So that's where we get the word paramedic, paraclete, paraglide, parachute. I want that chute to come alongside me when I need it, right? Someone who comes or something that comes alongside you. And in this case, kaleo, to aid, to help, and to encourage. So when he says, hey there, I want to appeal to you, he's saying, I want to come alongside you and help you do the right thing. I want to walk beside you through this. I don't want to just tell you what to do and leave you stand there. I want to walk beside you. You say, well, how can Paul walk beside me? Paul is in Rome. I'm over here. There's hundreds of miles in between us. How's he going to walk beside us? Very interestingly. In the Spirit. And let me see if I can tell you how that kind of an example of that this morning i got a text message from sherman i got one yesterday asking me if i was done with my notes yes i got one today it was a picture it was a picture of that computer back there that has the slides on it it was shut and had a thumb drive on top of it and there's a little note that said okay you put this in here and you put that in there and this is how the slides come up Now johnny did it for me so i didn't have to do it thank god for that And then it said, I love you, and I'm praying for you. How do you walk beside somebody else when you can't walk beside them? Sherman's walking beside me this morning. Even though right now he's somewhere on the I-5 in southern Washington State or in northern Oregon and driving at, let's hope, 70 miles an hour or less. He's walking beside me because he's praying for me. And I know that he's doing that. Philemon knew through this letter that Paul understood what was going on and that Paul was praying for him. And it says in the Bible, the effectual prayers of a righteous man availeth much. He was walking beside Philemon. He understood that he didn't want to just tell Philemon what to do. He wanted to help Philemon understand what to do and why he was doing it. So he didn't force his will, he walked with him, he beseeched him, he appealed to him, he said, "Parakaleo, I want to come alongside you and I want to help you, I want to encourage you through this. Paul knew that Philemon would be within his total legal right to have Onesimus killed. Onesimus stole money from him. The Roman law was quite clear. He could have him killed. And he could also not have him killed, but have every other slave that might have been in, that he might have thought been involved with this little theft killed as well. But Paul wanted to show Philemon a better way. So if we want to be people who affect forgiveness and reconciliation, which Christ calls in Matthew 5, 9, a peacemaker, And he's in there, in 5.9, he says, The peacemakers will be called who? The children of God. So if we want to be these peacemakers, we want to show reconciliation. Oh, by the way, let's think about that for a second. If Christ calls peacemakers the children of God, then what should the children of God be? Peacemakers, right? Are you a peacemaker? Is that a part of your life? Do you want to be reconciled to others? Isn't that what Christ has called us to be and to do? Not just between me and you, say, but I help you and you. In this case, Paul's helping Philemon and Onesimus be reconciled to one another. So how many of you people want to be peacemakers? When I was reading this, and I wrote this down, I said... I know I need to work harder on that one. In big letters, I need to work harder on that. Now, if you want to understand a little more about, you want to go deeper into this anger and reconciliation and how that affects your service to the Lord, on a side note, you can go read what Jesus has to say about that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Um, I, I will actually read a little of that later, but that those verses are an entire teaching in themselves. And if I look at my little clock here, it's almost noon and we don't have time to do that. So we're not going to do that today. But I would suggest that if you want to talk, you want to see what Jesus has to say about anger, reconciliation, and how it affects your service to Him, go read Matthew 5, 21 through 26. So anyway, if we want to be people who affect forgiveness and reconciliation, then we need to be tactful, sincere, and gentle... And let's read verses 10 through 16. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Point four, the reconciliation, clarity. So we are finally, we are about 45% way through this little short letter, and Paul finally gets to the point. When he says, I appeal, I come alongside you and encourage you, for, which is the Greek word concerning, my child Onesimus. Paul has spent all this time preparing Onesimus' heart against what he might want to do in the flesh to Onesimus. So... Did I say Nice? He's preparing Philemon, if I didn't say that right. And now Parle will clearly get to the heart of the matter. Just because he's going to do that, though, doesn't mean he's going to change his approach about it. So far, he's been tactful, sincere, and gentle. And he continues in that vein by making a little joke here. He says, Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. You see... Useful, the word useful in the Greek is the word Onesimus. His name actually means useful. So now he's making a little pun about his name. He says formerly he was not Onesimus, but now he is Onesimus. He's useful to you and to me. So in setting this issue before Philemon, Paul uses very passionate and poignant words to describe how he's feeling. He calls Onesimus his child, he calls him his heart. Literally, that is the, your bowels, your innards, the very core of your being. So your child, his heart, and he calls him his brother and the Lord. Words for Philemon that evoke great feelings. He calls him his child. Philemon had a son, understood that relationship and the feelings that his son Archippus created in him. He calls him his heart, which would have reminded Philemon of his wife, Apphia, the person who was his heart, his very core. And he calls Philemon his brother in the Lord, which reminds Philemon of his relationship with Paul himself. He's saying, this man is literally a part of me. He is trying to be as clear and concise as he can. In that same commentary that I mentioned earlier, Hughes writes, From this we learn an indispensable canon, which is a law, a rule, or a principle, for building relationships. Reconciliation and its cousins' intimacy, closeness, and fellowship thrive when believers are able to express their true feelings. We think that others know how we feel when in fact they have not the slightest idea. If Paul had said he loved Onesimus, it would have indicated something of how he felt. But his choice of language left absolutely no doubt in Philemon's mind. And it was a great reconcilia- steps toward reconciliation. When we want to reconcile, when we need to reconcile with others, we really need to be clear about the point. We can't say, you know, oh, I'm sorry I did that. What did you do? When did you do it? How did you do it? Who did you do it to? What did you actually say? Why are you really sorry? If you're not clear about it, People don't understand, and they don't think you're sincere about it. Let's move on to point five. Verses 17 through 22 says, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. You know, that was really important. That was very important. Paul was doing it himself. He didn't have somebody else write it. And he says, I will repay it. Say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Point five. Confidence in the work of Christ. Paul wasn't confident in his own work. He was confident in what Christ was doing in the heart of Philemon. He's confident of that outcome back in verse 13 in the middle of the letter where he implies that Philemon would want Onesimus to serve Paul in Philemon's place. He goes on to say that he would just have kept him, but he wanted Philemon to have the chance to make the correct decision on his own. As a parent, how many times have you done that? You want your kids to make the right decision. So you lead them up there, you show them everything, but you let them make that decision. And sometimes they don't make the right decision, sometimes they do. But in this case, Paul was confident of what was going to happen. He knew the outcome because he knew Philemon's heart. So he even goes so far as to say that he would repay any debt. This is kind of where I believe that it indicates that he probably stole money, but He says, I'm going to repay any debt. When Paul says that, he's saying he's going to repay a debt up to including death because that's what could happen here. Philemon could decide, I want to kill Onesimus. And Paul would have to say, well, wait a second. I said I'd repay that debt, so I'm going to stand up in his place and let you do that to me. You say, that's pretty harsh. But isn't that what Jesus did for you? Didn't he repay the debt? Didn't he die for each of us? Yes, he did. Would we be willing to repay the debt for someone else? That's what Paul was willing to do. But he was confident in what Christ was going to do in Philemon's heart. So he knew also that Philemon owed Paul. Why did he think Philemon owed him? Well, let's think about that. He says he owes him a great deal here. He owes him, what did he say? He says, owing me even your own self. So in other words, Paul was instrumental in Philemon becoming a Christian. Philemon owed Paul even his own life. So he was willing to exchange that debt for this other man. Paul was so confident in the outcome that he actually said I'm confident of your obedience. That's pretty confident. He knows who Christ is in this man and what he can do. He knew that Philemon would forgive Onesimus, which, when we look at it, is the actual linchpin to, to reconciliation, is forgiveness. We need forgiveness to be reconciled to Christ because of our sin. We need it to, we need, and we need forgiveness to occur when there has been hurt. Let's face it, we all do things that say, we say things that hurt each other even if it's unintentionally. So if you missed last week's message or if you were filling in the blanks on the slides or writing notes and you missed, there's two things that Sherman said last week that when he said them I went, oh, I better write those down because that's exactly where we're at next week. So here they are. First he said, Our greatest need is for forgiveness. Think about that. If God had chosen not to forgive you or me when we recognized our sin and we asked Him to forgive us and we asked Christ to live on the throne of our heart, where would we be now? Christ chose, God chose to forgive us. Christ chose to sacrifice for us. Where would we be now if He had said, eh, I don't really care that much about you. Where would we be now? He chooses to forgive us. We need to be people who choose to forgive. Because that thought that He forgave me makes me eternally grateful that the son of the living God of everything, and I do mean everything, they discovered some new galaxy again this week, and yahoo, they discovered another one. They're going to keep discovering, because God's work is infinite. They'll never discover the last one. But he sacrificed his only son for you. So we should be people who understand that we need forgiveness, and we need to forgive. Which leads me to the second thing that Sherman said that's pertinent here. And it was the question he asked all of us. How can we be forgiven if we do not forgive? Remember the parable of the servant who owed the master and was forgiven his debt only to go out and put another servant in prison that owed him a lesser debt? And what did the master do? When the master found out about that, He took the first servant, slammed him in prison till he could repay the debt, which, by the way, was never. I would not want to be someone who God thought didn't forgive others. I would not want to be that person. We need to be people that forgive. Paul also says here that forgiving Onesimus and reconciling with him will refresh, which literally means to give rest to, again, Paul's heart. So, Paul, even though he's confident, is a little concerned here. But he knows that that forgiveness will bring rest. That forgiveness will bring renewal. And that forgiveness will bring peace. Even Christ told us to be at peace with one another. So, there you have it the canon for reconciliation. Five things tactfulness in your approach, sincerity in your heart, gentleness in your words. Clarity in your thought, confidence in the work of Christ in your heart and in the hearts of others. So, at the beginning, we knew that this letter was coming and Anesimus was going back. So we wonder. question comes to mind, did it all work out? I mean, what did Philemon do? So, although it doesn't say so in the Bible, there is evidence to suggest that it did work out. Years later... A number of years later, a Christian martyr named Ignatius, he was being transported to Rome to be executed. Where he was actually executed for his faith. He wrote letters along the way to some of the different churches. That same, some of the churches that Paul wrote to, you know, and, and he wrote a church a letter to the church at Ephesus. Guess what? In that letter, he had really good things to say about their bishop. His name was Onesimus. So i got a big note that says, stop here. And I'm supposed to look at my clock and say, how much time do I have? Uh, we got enough time. Sherman goes to like whenever. So I guess I can go for a little while longer. Because I really do want, I want to touch a little bit on this, this Christian slave, Christians as slaves. Because it is a theme that runs through this letter if you read the words in the letter. So I'll, I'll try to go fast. Start by saying, Philemon was written somewhere around 60 A.D., and if you think about how far the gospel is spread by that time without the aid of anything we consider modern, no internet, no telegraph, no telephone, no, tele, no, tele, no tele-anything, no teletransportation, no nothing like that. These people had boats, and they walked, and they had carts and wagons, no trains, no cars, no nothing. And the gospel was spread that way, mouth to ear, People talking to each other. And it had spread so fast that what we characterize today as proper Christian behavior had not necessarily been communicated yet to all these people. In fact, Paul didn't even start writing these things we call the epistles. You know, Corinthians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. He didn't even start writing those till somewhere around A.D. 50. And this letter to Philemon was one of the last ones that's included. It was written around A.D. 60. So here we have these people who've only known that they were supposed to be Christians for like 30 some odd years. Not even quite that for some of them. And they don't know how to act. So some of them were slave owners before they became Christians. Some of them were slaves before they became Christians. And here Paul's trying to let them know how they need to behave with each other. How the body of Christ needs to interact with each other. So they're still learning about that. If you look at Acts you'll find instances of where Paul he when he was in his journeys, he, he had to deal with false teaching in the churches. In fact in our Bible study on Friday mornings we recently got finished with the letters to our, our first Timothy and now we're working on Second Timothy, I think. And one of the main reasons for those letters is Paul writing to Timothy to help him deal with false teaching in the church. So here in Philemon, Paul makes a point to let Philemon know what his, and by reference or inference, our relationship to other Christians, and I write even slaves, should be. A guy named Bob Slosser, in his introduction to Philemon, in the Spirit-Filled Life Bible, writes, slavery was an accepted economic and social reality in the Roman world. By the way, the Roman Empire at this time was actually larger than the Christian spread of the gospel. The Roman Empire went clear into what we know as Great Britain now. In fact, they built a big wall to keep the Romans out of Scotland. There was a, it had spread throughout what was then at that point the known world. And their influence was everywhere. A slave in that in that empire a slave was his master's property without rights. Under Roman law, runaway slaves could be severely punished and even condemned to death. Slave uprisings in the first century had resulted in fearful and suspicious owners. And in fact, there's a, I know of at least one instance where a guy had 400 slaves. One of them killed him. The Romans took, took this whole thing to court. And the prosecution pleaded that they should kill all 400 of those guys because you just don't know about those slaves. And guess what? That's what they did. One guy. 400 of them. So Roy screws up. We all die. I don't like that idea. Not even in the slightest. And Roy didn't screw up anyway. But that's the point here. Slaves were property. Oh, and you say, okay, well, we knew he was a runaway slave. We knew that Paul had offered to pay for whatever Onesimus owed. And it seems likely that he stole If this were the case, when he were caught, Onesimus would, at a minimum, have been branded with two things on his forehead. First, the letter F, for fugitive, or fugitivus, in Latin. And the letter C, F, for cave furum, which means beware of thief. So at a minimum, that was what was going to happen. I don't even like to think about that one. So... It was here, in this point in my little notes, when I was writing, that I was going to start talking about the four words that I I think we need to talk about here. The words prisoners, slaves, bondservants, and brothers. But then a question, I'm seriously sitting on my bed on Thursday, and this question pops into my mind, and and it stopped me in my tracks, stopped me dead in my tracks. And for 30 minutes, I sat on my bed going, oh my, wow. And I had to work my way through that question. So I thought, if I had to work my way through that question, you so might have to work your way through that question here, as well. So that question was: knowing what could happen, would I, would I have had the faith and the courage to do what Onesimus did? Would you? I mean, Paul sent him back to what was most certainly going to be, by all legal rights, an extremely hostile environment. Onesimus had run once. It'd be easy to run again. So besides age, what was the difference between the man that ran and the man that went back? His faith in Christ. Simple as that. That was the difference. How strong must that faith have been? So before you say to yourself, I'm glad we don't have to worry about that one because slavery is illegal here in America, ask yourself just what kind of hostile environment, what kind of persecution might you have to face here in the good old land of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Just what people group, and this is a question, just what people group do you think is the one group that pretty much it's okay for everyone to bash right now on social media, the politicians do it, Polly Weird does it. They're all doing it. Who do you think it's okay to bash, put down, harass, and otherwise be vile towards? Well, it's not the Muslims. It's not the LGBTQ. It's not women. And it's not any race, creed, or color group that you can really think of, that's for sure. Who is it? Conservative Christians. Us. So if you think about that, yeah, they're doing it on social media now. And if you reply on social media, what's gonna to happen to you? You're gonna get bashed. I can trust you right now. I don't care how kind, gentle, tactful, you know, clear you are, you're gonna get bashed by some guy who just thinks it's okay to bash Christians. And and you must be prejudiced because you're a conservative Christian. You have to be prejudiced against, you know, other religions. You have to be prejudiced against LGBTQs and everybody else. You have to be prejudiced. You must be some, some guy running for president, some mayor of South Bend, said that, that this week indicated that it was white race people that were the problem. He's running for president. By the way, he's white. I don't get that one. So, although you may not face that hostility today, As some in the world do, and there are people in the world that face persecution for their faith daily. They are being killed daily because they believe in the Son of God and His saving grace. If your faith stays strong enough, you probably will. So will you have the faith and courage to do what Onesimus did? That was the question. So, okay, enough seriousness. Let's get back to the four words. Prisoner. Slave, bondservant, and brother. In verse 1, Paul says he's a prisoner Prisoner for Jesus Christ. Paul mentions four times in this short letter that he's either a prisoner or imprisoned. And if we look at that word prisoner in the Greek, it's talking about someone who is bound, a captive. Someone who is a captive like that. Their every movement, their every their very life is tied to the one who bound them. And in Greek, the literal phrase here is not A prisoner for Jesus Christ, but a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So why didn't Paul say he was a prisoner of Rome? I mean, he's in Rome, he's in prison, and the Romans imprisoned him. Why did he not say he was a prisoner of Rome, but a prisoner for Christ? What Paul is saying when he says, I am a prisoner for Christ, is that in every circumstance... And in every situation, his very movement, his very life is not tied to the situation or the circumstance, but to Christ and what Christ has for him. He can rest on the fact that Christ is directing his life, and therefore he need not worry about the outcome, even if he is a prisoner. For it will be what God wants it to be, and he will have the strength and the faith to endure. I watched a movie the other night while was doing some school prep. She's already doing school prep. School doesn't start for another week. <sighs> oh well. Anyway, and I was watching this movie and there was it was about a hurricane that was about to hit an island and there was this young lady who'd never been through a hurricane before and, and by the way she was acting in the movie and probably never been through anything else before. And she was about to experience this hurricane and she was in this house and she was absolutely, literally, totally freaking out about this. She, she wanted to do something, anything, even if it was boil water. I was like, okay. So she's talking to this older lady that's in the house. And she's, I can't understand why the older lady's not freaking out too. And the older lady says to her, well, it's like this. If God doesn't want the hurricane to hit us, it won't. And if he does, it will. And worrying about it is not going to change that outcome. The idea is, in fact, this idea is probably the context of one of the most misquoted and misused verses in the Bible. And I'm going to turn there, and if you want to turn there, you can go to Philippians and chapter 4. And we're going to read, starting in verse 10, if you want to do that, you can. If not, I'll read it to you. Philippians 4.10, we're going to read through verse 13. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern or revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity, not that I am speaking of being in need, whatever the circumstance, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content." I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then the verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So when he writes this, where is Paul? Where is Paul? He's in prison. It's like... A lot of his letters, he's in prison. And how does it say he's feeling? He says, I am content. I am joyful. I am good. So what is he talking about? Here He's talking about this circumstance. He's learned how this circumstance does not control him because he is in Christ. So what does he tell us? Verse 13, he says, he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. And this is where that verse gets misapplied. Because I see it all over places, you know, as one of these, you can do anything through Jesus because he strengthens you. So if, if you want to be this or you want to do that, you can do it because God's going to strengthen you to do that. That is not what it's talking about here. Paul is not saying in verse 13 that he can be the next senator of Rome or he can be the next Olympic champion or any one of a hundred other things. He is saying he can't endure. Literally, he can endure. That is the literal word. The trials and the circumstances of life. Why? Because of the one who is strengthening him, Christ. Paul knows he is bound as a slave to Jesus. And Jesus is his strength. And his faith is. Is in Jesus. Are we getting this picture? There's a there's a there's a crux here. There's a there's an axle, and there's a center of that axle. And what's the center of that axle? It's Jesus. He can endure things. He can accomplish things. He wants to be things. He wants to reconcile these two men. Why? Because of the love of Jesus that's in his heart. That's why. So are you joyful and content? In whatever circumstance God places you in, do you trust Christ to strengthen you through those circumstances? Here's where it gets personal. So on Thursday, when I'm writing all this, I had a point in time where I really wasn't very joyful, and I wasn't really content in my circumstance. And I made that discontent known to someone I care very deeply about. And I was very much wrong. Because I wasn't trusting in Christ to strengthen me, and give me contentment. That man, on Friday, I had to learn about what I was going to teach about reconciliation. On Friday morning, I sat out in my backyard and reconciled myself to that person. You can figure that out for yourself without me telling you who it was. We need to trust God in every circumstance. We need to know That we have the one that strengthens us and will allow us to endure any trial that we may have to face because we believe and we want to talk about it. That's who we need to be. We need to be those people. Verse 16 says, I am no longer a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother. Here the word bondservant is translated into three different words in three different versions. Very confusing. Here in this ESV, it's called bondservant. In the King James, which probably is what Richard's got back there, it's called servant. And if you had the new King James, which I had all three on my bed, the word is slave. So which one is correct? And really, why does it matter? Well, the answer isn't A, B, or C. It's D, all of the above. So Onesimus ran away from Philemon. When he ran away, what was he? he was a slave. The Word Study Dictionary which he has on my bed describes that word as one who is in permanent relation of servitude to another. His will being altogether consumed in the will of the other. That person can do nothing without the other person's consent. When Onesimus ran... That's who he was. He was a slave. When he returned to Philemon, he was a bondservant. A person in voluntary service because his life is so tied to the other that all he wants to do is serve. So he wasn't just a bondservant of Philemon. No, 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 no. Onesimus was a bondservant of the Holy One, Christ Christ. Should this not describe those of you here today who call yourselves Christians? Were you not? I know I was. Were you not slaves to sin? You were a slave to sin. Trust me. Romans tells you you were a slave to sin. And now we serve Jesus. Why? Because we can't help it. That's what we want to do. We are bondservants. We were slaves. We are bondservants. So Paul here, he throws Philemon for a loop by telling him basically he's required to forgive Onesimus. He doesn't have a way around it because he's in Christ and forgiveness is their requirement. And then he rocks Philemon's world when he says Philemon needs to look upon this slave Not as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother. Hmm, I have to think about that. That means I have to look on other Christians as a beloved brother. So let's figure that out. What does that mean? Well, that word beloved talks about a fellowship of life based on identity of origin. In other words, your brother You have life together because you have an origin, your parents. That's what that word, it it describes our identity as who we are based on our origin. And then the word beloved says co-conjoined in the bonds of faith and love. That's what that means. It's the same word that Paul uses up in verse 1 to describe his relationship with Philemon. So if we don't know what conjoined means. And for me, I had to look it up. It means being or coming brought together so that we meet, touch, overlap, or unite. So think of conjoined twins. Okay? They share parts. They, they, they share a life because they have an identity of origin. And a common purpose. That's what we are. We have an identity of origin and a common purpose, a common faith, a common love, a common grace. Those things we have. That's what a beloved brother is. Okay. So, let me put this kind of all together and we'll relook at verse 16 and we'll expand it out a little bit and we'll see what we come up with. Paul writes to Philemon Onesimus is no longer a slave in forced servitude, his will defined by your will, but he's a bondservant of yours because he is a bondservant of Christ whose life is so tied to the will of Christ that he is willingly coming back to you to serve you. And even so, he is more than that to you because he is united with you in the same bonds of faith and love and his life has the same origin as yours, Christ. Think about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 22 and 23 says, For he who was called as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. And likewise, he was free when he is called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Colossians 4, 1 says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Ephesians 6.9 says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So we look at all this, it's not hard to see that Christian slave owners like Philemon began to free their slaves. And Christian slaves like you know, Onesimus were willing to become bondservants. And I, and I swear I'm on the last page. One final note. I hear Sherman call all of you brothers and sisters all the time. He says it from up here. He said it last week. All the time from this pulpit. I know he knows what he's actually saying. I know he understands that he's telling you he's united with you in the bonds of faith and love that can only be formed because you have the same identity of origin as he does. That relationship is special and is not to be treated lightly. Which means that sometimes forgiveness and reconciliation is required. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 put it like this in verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift, which is your service to Christ, by the way, that's what that means. Whoops! If you're offering your gift at the altar and you there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Reconciliation affects your life. It's important and you need to do it. If you have a problem, do it. You are reconciled to Christ. Be reconciled to others. Sherman has been talking a lot of, lately about relationships. And he's talking mostly about the relationships with between us and people who are not believers. And he says four things. First he says pray for them. Then he says love them. And then he says share the gospel with them. And then he says trust God for them. Right? That's my take on it. So what about our relationship towards those who are our brothers and sisters? One, pray for them. You should want unity. Two, love them. Forgive and be forgiven. Three, share the gospel. What? Yes, share the gospel. The good news strengthens us. When we share between each other, we become stronger. Share the gospel. And four, trust God for them. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for our day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us and that we should have grace and mercy toward each other. We thank you for your blessing on the day and the rest of this week and for watching over Sherman and Kim and the kids as they drive home, bringing them back safely to us. And And I just thank you for all these people here and their patience with me, Lord. In your name, amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org and would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.